Only about 6% of realtors in the United States are black. Many in the profession want to change that. We want a diverse, healthy, family of realtors. Find out more about efforts to diversify the ranks of real estate agents just ahead on All Things Peoria. Good afternoon, I'm Jody Holtz. Coming up, learn about a new program to increase diversity among realtors and how it could play in Peoria. And how the sale of 150-year-old bricks are funding the Washington Historical Society's mission. I think there's an interest in need. And so hopefully they'll sell. Plus on Postmark Peoria, hear more of Steve Tarter's recent conversation about famed 19th century orator Robert Greene Ingersoll. Those stories plus local news just ahead. This is WCBU's All Things Peoria on 89.9 FM in WCBU.org. Support for WCBU comes from the General Wayne A. Downing Peoria International Airport. Flying through PIA can take you anywhere. If you're working away from home or taking a new adventure, you can fly local with American, Allegiant, or United Airlines. Trips begin and end at Peoria International Airport. Details at flypia.com. from the campus of Bradley University. This is WCBU's news magazine, All Things Peoria, and I'm Jody Holtz. Great to be with you here on this hot Tuesday afternoon. The National Association of Realtors has launched a new program that hopes to diversify the real estate industry. The SPIRE program is a four-month initiative designed to encourage individuals from different backgrounds and minority communities to learn the fundamentals of the industry through mentorship. Peoria Area Association of Realtors President Robin Simpson tells me more about SPIRE, beginning with how many people may not realize the different career avenues real estate has to offer. When we think of the term realtor, we think of the people that sell houses. And that is by far the largest population of realtors. But there there are professions with appraisers, with investment realtors, with um, people that help others lease property. So commercial real estate can be anywhere from industrial, agricultural, you think of shopping malls, you think of small apartments, all of those things play into real estate. And not everybody knows how they can get involved. And so it's not demographically diverse. And we want to see that become much more diverse to really represent our local populations. So they've come up with this program to set up people that aren't in the business yet or maybe have just started in the business that want to learn from people that are very seasoned. So they will pair somebody up with a seasoned real estate professional in the field that they're interested in and they become a personal mentor. So there's applications online, but then it's a four-month program. So it goes June through September. You'll spend four to eight hours a month with your, your mentor, but it also opens up online platforms. So it gives you opportunities to take some classes to find out, is this really what I'm interested in? Or maybe I want to look at a different part of real estate. Yeah. So I guess tell me a little bit about where these mentors are coming from. Like, say, for example, if someone in Peoria signed up for the program, would they ever get to meet with their mentor, you know, in person? 
depends on where they are and what they're looking for. It's completely voluntary from the National Association of Realtors, both for the mentor and the mentee. Mm -hmm. So they may be signed up with somebody here locally that they can meet with in person. Most likely it's going to be Zoom meetings, but then they also do have opportunities for um, state, regional, national meetings that they can come together and meet in person at those two. And they've built some really good relationships over the last few years through these programs really helping people succeed. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and no experience necessary, right, in the real estate Correct. industry at all? Nope, you do not have to be licensed to apply for this program. Um, so if you're just kind of thinking, maybe I want to own my own business someday, and maybe real estate is something interesting, it might be a great thing for you to put in an application. Yeah, and so once somebody submits an application, I guess what are the determining factors that you know people are looking at to consider if they're going to be in the program or not? It's going to go to NAR, and they're going to try and make sure they have a good mentor for that mentee, right? So there has to be the volunteer on the other side, the experienced real estate professional, the experienced realtor that is going to be able to help them. Mm-hmm. We want to make sure it's somebody that would be in a similar market. Real estate is very, very local. So somebody that sells in a very different market wouldn't necessarily be a good match. Just taking a look at the numbers now, there's definitely no doubt that this program is needed. According to the 2020 NAR member profile report, blacks made up only 6% of NAR membership, with whites in the majority at 80%, and Hispanics at just 10%. Um, So what are some potential reasons that we're seeing such a low number of minority groups being represented within the real estate industry? I think they haven't had access to the information on how you go through the process. So we're trying to change that. We want a diverse, healthy family of realtors that can help all of our population around our country and especially in our local community. We have a great local community and we need more wonderful professionals to do it. Do any like past practices come into mind that you think has maybe created a barrier to entry for some of these individuals? Nothing in particular. I think it's just really going forward, being positive and intentional on making sure everyone has access to that. Everyone has the information because it's certainly a wonderful profession that if you have that entrepreneurial spirit, you can have a great successful career. And, you know, other than this program, um, do you know of any other ways that PAR or NAR is looking to kind of close this gap and make the real estate industry more diverse? Well, we're definitely educating our own agents. So there have been some really good advocacy programs for at home with diversity certifications and implicit bias, making sure we're aware of how we're connecting with our communities. Um, Commitment to excellence is a big push through the National Association of Realtors that we have brought here locally to make sure we're doing the best job. Going out to job fairs at our local high schools and community colleges, you can be a licensed real estate agent at the age of 18. So it's getting that information out to our young people as this is an avenue for you. Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, this program also kind of seems to have a focus, kind of like you brought up earlier, on helping people build generational wealth through property ownership. Can you kind of explain a little bit about just why that's important to consider? Well, you know, when you own your home, you have equity and that's personal wealth. Right. And there's nothing wrong with renting. 
There are some great rental opportunities in our area, but you're paying somebody else's mortgage when you're renting. When you own, you pay your own mortgage. So that is personal wealth that can be handed down through generations. The more property you can own, the more personal wealth that you acquire. It's a way to just gain your own independence and freedom. That was PARS Robin Simpson talking to me about the NAR Spire program. Simpson says once participants complete the program, the next step would be to find a pre-licensing class if they want to continue in the industry. The application deadline is coming up here on May 31st. Applications can be found at nar.realtor/spire. This is 89.9 FM and WCBU.org. You're listening to All Things Peoria. I'm Jody Holtz. The Washington Historical Society is selling pieces of Washington's history 275 bricks at a time. They're 150-year-old bar paving bricks that were removed several years ago from a section of Zinzer Place near Market Street. WCBU correspondent Steve Stein spoke with Washington Historical Society President Jewel Ward about the unique fundraiser. Probably about two years ago, Dennis Carr from the Washington city of Washington contacted the historical society and I was the contact person Mm -hmm. and uh, it was an interesting thing. Uh, They had 150 year old bricks that had come out of the streets in Washington that were safekeeping stored to do for repairs. And at that point they said that the city decided they didn't want to keep them anymore after a few decades. And so they were kind of in a disrepair. So we found out from Dennis Carr, would this be something the historical society was interested in? So I took it back to the board and we talked about it. We said, what are we gonna do with these bricks? Well, they're more than bricks, they're pavers. And so they're big pavers, 150 years old. They have the bar uh, emblem on them, B-A-R-R, where they were made Um, and they're heavy. And so they're like eight pounds each. And so we thought, well, these are some really interesting bricks. Can they be used somewhere? So we did a little bit of brainstorming and uh, came up with an idea that, you know, people would like to make patios with them or walkways or something of that sort. Um, They're nice bricks. I hate to see them destroyed or thrown away or whatever they were gonna dispose of them. I'm not exactly sure how. So we took it upon ourselves to uh, figure out a way that we could remove those. How many bricks are there, were there altogether? (laughs) Oh goodness, there was lots and lots of bricks. But what we were able to salvage was about 100 pallets. um, And we had to put those on pallets. It was a really time consuming process with manual labor. And so we got them on brick pallets to be able to be moved and, and delivered about 275 bricks per pallet. Okay. And you had a lot of volunteer help in doing that, right? Because that was quite a project. So the whole <clears throat> process is like, how do we remove these bricks that are in piles? What are we gonna do with them? And where are we gonna go with them? Mm-hmm. So we came to the solution uh, spearheaded by Betty, uh, Buddy Lersh and Larry Sloniger. They kind of brainstormed this and. Mm-hmm took this on as volunteers for the historical society and they came up with a system of how we would move these from piles into pallets so that we can transport them and the volunteers then became uh interesting because we had historical society member volunteers but you know that's a lot of work every saturday and sunday and so we ended up reaching out to the high school and we got quite a few different kids, um, probably more than 40 students wow. helped. When, when was this? 
Um, the time frame was about six months when we oh. were in production from uh, early summer till November of, of this last, year. Last year. Last year. Last year. Last year. Okay. Last year. Okay. Yeah, okay. 2022. Okay. So they would put in two-hour time frames is what we do either on a Saturday or Sunday. A lot of leadership uh, kids, a lot of cross-country kids, football kids, soccer. Do, I mean, do they need community service hours at um, school? Yeah, some of them did. Some of them didn't. Okay. If they did, we filled out a uh, form for them to take back. Okay. Um, but they were... Actually, we had quite a few repeats, so it must not have been that bad. Okay. <laughs> okay. <laughs> they had a lot of fun doing where, it. Where were the bricks? Where were they actually? The bricks were stored um, on city property back by the, um, I don't know what you call that, sewer plant, one of the sewer plant areas along okay. a fence line. Okay. On Legion Road out there? Uh, believe, yes. Okay. Yes. Okay. Yes. Um, on any, Legion Road. Any idea how old these are? So we're we're estimating them to be about 150 years old. Wow. They're the same bricks that were used probably on uh, Catherine Street. I think yeah. these were the, some of the bricks that were taken off, and I'm not sure. Dennis wasn't sure. sure where they came from. No, the, we're not yeah. really here yeah. either, but various streets throughout town when they were replaced with blacktop. Okay. 150 years old. So. Yeah, yeah. Okay. And have you sold any of them yet? Yeah, yes, we have. We sold a couple pallets. Okay. Um, but I think during the spring, now that we're opened up and we've published it out in our newsletter and people are starting, I think they're going to go pretty quickly. So, so we have about 100 pallets. How many How many do you think you'll sell? I mean, or what, what will you be using the money for? So I'm trying to say. So yeah. we, haven't, that, yeah. we haven't actually earmarked a set thing for yeah. the sales, but I imagine we will. There's priorities for the historical society that we're um, looking to do in the future. So we have a hundred pallets at uh, two hundred seventy-five dollars uh, after the price. Yeah, at, yeah. at the price, so that's a nice chunk of change that we would be able to to put back into our community and okay. to the historical society. So oh. I can't say for sure what that money would go for, but mm -hmm. definitely would go for something um, yeah. that would help. The have you ever heard of anybody having a sale like this on these things? <laughs> no, not exactly. But I will say people want these bricks. So really? when they see them, they say, well, that's an interesting brick. If you go to Menards or uh, a brick place to buy bricks, I don't know what they are per brick, yeah, but yeah. these are 150-year-old uh, pavers. They have a little bit of history within Washington, mm -hmm. and they're pretty unique. So, you know, you see some people have their driveways done in pavers or... Uh, I know one person in town that actually had their house built with old pavers. Okay. Um, I don't know if we wouldn't have enough to do a house, but yeah, um, yeah I, think there's a, I think there's an interest in need, and so hopefully they'll sell. That was Washington Historical Society President Jewel Ward speaking to Steve Stein about the salvaged road pavers they're selling. Thanks for being tuned in to WCBU's news magazine, All Things Peoria, this afternoon. I'm Jody Holtz. Peoria's Robert Greene Ingersoll was known to drop a good quote or two, to put it lightly. The 19th century orator's love of life comes out in some of those idioms. So, too, does his disdain for military conflict born out of his experiences as a prisoner of war? WCBU correspondent Steve Tarter continues his conversation about Ingersoll with historian Justin Clark in this Postmark Peoria episode. Yeah, no, he absolutely loved life. I mean, one of my favorite things about Ingersoll was that um, he was a rather large man. Um, yep. And he used to say that a meal not taken is a meal lost forever. Um, <laughs> so I always think that's kind of fun. And he always has really great quotes. Like there's one of the famous ones that's from one of his speeches, which is the, give me the storm and tempest of thought and action rather than the dead calm of ignorance and faith. Banish me from the Garden of Eden, if you will, but first let me eat of the fruit of the tree of knowledge. 
Mm. Um, that's kind of a famous one I know off the top of my head. Um, and then obviously he's known for like the happiness creed, um, which is something like it's definitely like, um, you know, what we would kind of imagine is humanism today where he said, you know, happiness is the only good. The time to be happy is now. The place to be happy is here. The way to be happy is to make others so. Yeah. Um, and his whole thing was, cause that was the thing is that like, they would try people who were critical of him, who, because he did have extremely irreverent religious opinions that very much went against the grain of sort of Victorian era values. And, but they could never really get him on anything because, um, he was now, he, his own, his own personal life was one of sort of utmost integrity. I mean, he was, he was married only once. He was married his entire life to a woman named Ava Parker. Um, he had he had a couple of children. He had two children, I think two daughters. Um, he was a dedicated family man. Um, and there's actually a story about um, someone had accused him of being a, uh, a drunk, uh, being drunk at a dinner one time and sort of yelling at his son or something like that. And Ingersoll said, well, first off, I don't drink. Um, so he, because he really didn't. And second off, I don't have a, I don't have a son. Uh, <laughs> Outside so, of that, the story's really good. <laughs> so, you know, it was, he was one of those people that be, even though he had these very irreverent religious opinions, he was universally respected by yeah. the political establishment and sort of the mainstream America in a lot of ways, because people saw his utmost integrity. I mean, he was a civil war veteran. He had fought in the battle of Shiloh. He had been a prisoner of war during the civil war. Um, in fact, he was at a prisoner of war camp led by Nathan Bedford Forrest, of all people. Oh. Um, and um, he gave a speech, one of his more famous speeches that has nothing to do with religion, is one that he gave in Indianapolis, um, that was, uh, which was the, you know, the, um, the Masters of War speech, where he's basically it's this incredibly eloquent and uh, anti-war speech, where he's arguing, you know, um, basically saying that like the cause of the union was just, but that war is, is sort of a universal evil. And, and that, and he's written, and he wrote very clearly that, you know, his experiences in the civil war sort of, for some people, they would make them more religious. And for him, it sort of killed his religious experiences or his, his religious convictions. Um, yeah. so yeah, I mean, that's the thing about him that's fascinating is that like he, he would have fit in with the sixties to a point because like he lived a very small C conservative lifestyle. He was not, you know, he wasn't interested in free love. He wasn't interested in drugs. He was, he was, a, mm -hmm. he was a consummate family man. And, and charitable. And, and, you know, yeah. there's a story of a young woman who had basically, he helped pay for her for some things that she had needed after she had been banished for her, from her church for, for, for espousing religious opinions closer to Ingersoll. Um, and there's a story about essentially he kind of died penniless because he gave most of his money away. He made it, mm. he made a tremendous amount of money during his life and he probably gave away as much money as he ever, um, uh, earned because not only did he take care of his family, his whole entire extended family lived on when he, when his, when he, in his last years, he lived in upstate New York and his entire family lived with him, his, his daughters and their husbands. It was a whole big compound where they all lived. Um, and then he gave tons of money away to charities and other political activities. So yeah, he was a, he was definitely a civic minded person who cared far more about what he could do in this life rather than the supposed thereafter. I, I can't remember the name of the magazine at the time. Obviously it would have been late 1800s. But mm -hmm. he was on the cover, and obviously this was a rather negative story because they were they, they, all the crowd were throwing coins at him, making a lot of money um, 
doing these speeches, which which he did. But as you say, um, he he turned around and, and used that money uh, for others. It was... And he also and he also made a ton of money being a lawyer. Um, you know, his story is very, especially his early life and especially his time in Illinois is very Lincoln esque in mm-hmm. the sense that, you know, he never went to college. Um, he was a guy who taught himself the law. Um, gets accepted to the to the Illinois bar, becomes a lawyer in the 1850s. He moves to Peoria in about 1858 um, and lives there for practically 20 years before he would move to Washington D.C. for a time for a stint. Um, but you know he had lived all over the country. But the only place he really stayed for a long period of time during his formative period was um, was Peoria. And mm-hmm. you know so he made a lot of money doing doing uh uh defending especially railroads kind of right. like what lincoln did um on the on the sort of illinois law circuit um in the antebellum era like ingersoll did the same thing but you know during the sort of the, the antebellum through the civil war and then um postbellum era where particularly there was something called the star route trials which was a which is an entire volume of his collected works is devoted to this like particular trial. Um, and it was, you know, the star route was this particular railroad tycoon. So, you know, he was somebody who had some contradictions in the sense that like, he definitely was charitable and kind and, and believed that capitalism should sort of not, he wasn't a socialist in the way that Debs was. I don't think he would have identified himself as that. Um, but, you know, he sort of was very critical of the way in which sort of, you know, big, corporations or the trusts as they were called then were sort of influencing life um, and, and creating in some respects inequality, but then also he worked for railroads and made a ton of money from them. (laughs) Uh, So it's kind of like uh, that's kind of those contradictions. Right. But I guess it's part and parcel of that period where it's like, you know, you know, local guy makes good, but then you sort of try to parlay that into charity, I guess. Justin, one more thing. Your project, you're working obviously with the Indiana Historical Bureau. Mm-hmm. Are you planning on uh, something with uh, Ingersoll or Debs uh, in the near future? Or Well, I mean, I think the main thing that I'm working on now, um, I thought about trying to do another article about Ingersoll's sort of some of his speaking engagements in Indiana specifically, because I touch upon it a little bit in my my thesis research, but I didn't do as much with that. So maybe that's something, but one other project I definitely am working on right now is um, Eugene Debs and his views of the Bolshevik revolution in the early Soviet union. Um, uh, Because Debs has some very interesting um, views on the emergence of sort of the, the, you know, uh, Russian revolution in 1917. He was very supportive of Lenin and Trotsky, but then also very, critical of the ways in which they used forms of political violence. Postmark Peoria is a co-production of WCBU and Mike Sable. If you want even more stories about Peoria history, subscribe to the Postmark Peoria podcast on Apple, Google, Spotify, or the NPR app. And that is all the time we have for today's episode of All Things Peoria from WCBU, a public service of Bradley University and Illinois State University. I'm your host, Jody Holtz. Thanks for joining me today. This is 89.9 FM and WCBU.org, Peoria Public Radio, part of the NPR Network. 